welcome to the Faith Chapter Podcast, where we explore your faith in the real world. Through interviews and the study of God's Word, we will gain insight into faith from people like you and me. I'm your host, Gio Marin. Join me throughout the week as we explore your faith chapter. Good evening, Andrews University. Have you had a good day? Yeah? Midway through the week, Wednesday, right? Is, is, I'm asking seriously. Okay, good. Someone yesterday, I, I was signing a, a book for someone, and I, I said, oh, uh, what's the date? And they said, it's the whatever. And I said, oh, w- what month is it? And then I was like, is it 13 or 14? I mean, I'm like, not. Nah, that's not, I'll tell you a true story. I did not learn my months until I was 21 years old. An, I'm telling you the straight truth. I would always get that whole November, October, September thing all switched around. And it got me into a, a few kind of embarrassing situations. And so one day as a, as a you know, grown man, 21-year-old man, I sat in a, a room with like a calendar and learned my months so I could actually get them. I don't know. My brain is not wired in certain ways, but in other ways it is. So awesome to be here. Um, I've just been going, 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 meeting so many wonderful, awesome, beautiful people. And I just want to say again how much of a privilege it's been for me to be here, to be on this campus, to have met great students and great teachers, the pastoral staff, the chaplain department. I'm, I'm having the time of my life, and I'm not just saying that. Uh, this series is really being transformative for me, and I've talked to several students who have said the same thing, and, and that just thrills my soul. Uh, I want to kind of, we're, we're at a transition point now. We're, we're halfway through and we're going to be transitioning away from some of the difficult questions that we've been asking. We've asked questions like, how do I know that God exists? What about this question of, of suffering? And um, those kinds of questions, the sort of thorny questions that confront us. What about Darwinism? What about evolution? We, we've not been able to address those questions exhaustively. Of course not, not in this venue. But I think we have given ourselves uh, intellectual permission to move forward, and that's what we're going to do now. We're, we're at a crossroads, and in some ways, we're going to backtrack, because we started the whole presentation, uh, the whole series. Th- by the way, did you notice this? This is awesome, right? This is really good. By the way, there's no theology, no, nothing has changed. This is just the flowers have changed, but the truth has not changed. And uh, we're not sending any sort of message here other than the message that that has always been communicated by these flowers, and that is the truth that God is love. And this is the table of truth, which we have cleared. Have we cleared it permanently? No, we've cleared it provisionally or, or, or sort of experimentally. Let's see if we can put our own faith back together and put the right things in the right place and the wrong things, let's just get them off the table of truth. You will recall in our opening presentation, we talked about Paul's critique of his own religion. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should be constantly evaluating and, and critiquing and analyzing our own faith, lest we be led away into uh, to a self-deception. And, and Paul was concerned that his, his uh, Jewish compatriots, that his brothers and sisters in genealogy, that they had misunderstood their own book, their own prophets, and their own faith. And what we're trying to do here is be aware that that is a similar danger that we could be in as Christians or for those of us that are Adventists, as Adventists specifically 
Is it possible that we could misunderstand the nature of our own religion, our own faith? And I'm maintaining that the answer to that is yes. It's not only possible. In some cases and in some sectors, it's likely. And uh, so we're going to sort of backtrack now and we're going to spend the rest of our time, the next one, two, three presentations, and then Saturday morning is going to be something very different and very special. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that more as the week progresses. But we're going back to the table of truth now. We've, we've addressed those, those you know, hard-nosed, sort of thorny questions, and we're back here at the table of truth. So what I need to do, just here for a moment, is, is take this off the table. Of course, some of you are going to protest and say, but that never comes off the table. And you're right. But we're going to pretend like this is almost the opening night. We've not done everything that we've done up to this point. We're kind of starting over. And uh, I want to begin by asking a question that you are going to be inclined to answer very quickly, okay? But I'm going to ask you to take a pensive, pregnant moment and think about it before you answer, okay? And here's the question. Is it good news that there is a God? All right, now you've had your moment. What do you think? Is it good news that there's a God? Okay, all right. Well, I, I gave you a moment to not fall into the trap, and most of you have fallen into it anyway. Um, by a raising of hands, well, now that you've kind of, I've sort of alerted you to the fact that uh, uh, you've fallen into a bit of a trap, not all of you, but those of you that were so quick to say yes, um, let me see if I can steer you to another question that might alert you to the danger or the inappropriateness of the answer that you just gave. I ask a simple question, is it good news that there is a God? And many of you were inclined to say yes. In fact, probably if, if I didn't give you all of that preamble and I just stood up and said, is it good news that there's a God? We could probably rally about 99.9% .9 of you into saying yes. But what I'm trying to do here is, is to get you to think in a slightly different, and I'm going to suggest better direction. Okay? Now, let me ask you this question. Let's see if I can lead you to where we're going here. Ladies, is it good news that there is a husband? Ah, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're, I'm hearing the answers. And Lauren, right on the front, you said, what did you say there? Yeah, you said no. Well, I don't think that's the right answer. <laughs> All right. You know, control, alt, delete on that one. Um, I did hear somebody say, Vimbo, was it you? I heard it down here. Okay, there we go. Vimbo says, not always. Or you could say, it depends. Would you, would you agree with that, ladies? If I say, hey, is it good news that there's a husband? You would not be immediately inclined to say, well, yes, of course, because all husbands are good. Right, I've met some husbands. I myself have been a bad husband, and I have met some bad husbands. And so an answer to the question, is it good news that they're a husband? The only appropriate answer is, well, it depends. And what would it depend on? What would be the sort of follow-up question? It would depend on what, what kind of a husband. But what kind of a husband are we talking about? Describe that husband, and then I'll tell you, because let me tell you right now, a husband or a wife, ladies, you're not off the hook, a husband or a wife can be really bad news. Yeah? Can be really bad news. And I'm not going to spend time here going into my own family history, but it took uh, my mother one, two, three tries to get it right. I never met my biological father. My second father was a deadbeat. And not until I was in my mid-teens did I get anything resembling a dad, right? So, so can, can 
Are all husbands good? No. Can you have bad husbands? Yes. Can you have bad wives? Yes. Now let me ask the question again. Is it good news that there's a God? Oh, come on. You're driving me crazy. The answer, the only appropriate answer given, now, now maybe you feel like you've, you, you've got sufficient context here because, oh, this is David and we've already been talking and we're in a church and you know generally what I'm talking about. But, but notice I didn't say, is it good news that, that there is a good God, that there's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that there's the God that Jesus came to represent? I just ask you a very general question, a very, a very acme question, and that is, is it good news that there is a God? And the appropriate answer should be, it depends. Thank you, Jose. Woo! It depends. In fact, let me go. Let me, let me take uh, a bit of an atheistic tack with you here for just a little bit. I, I really love reading uh, apologetic works and particularly debates between atheists and theists and watching debates. I had, I had a privilege of being in Sydney and actually attending a debate between Dr. Michael Shermer and Dr. John Lennox of Cambridge University. I was there at the debate. And I think I might have mentioned this already, but when the, when the debate was done, they gave the questioners an opportunity to, to ask, the audience members a, an opportunity to ask. Did I tell you this story? And I raced to the microphone. I mean, I, was just, I couldn't get to the microphone quick enough and ask my question of Dr. Shermer. I, I listen to these debates. I have a real passion for this. And I will tell you that at least 25% of the time, I'm pulling for the atheist. What? What do you mean you're pulling for the atheist? In fact, there are some particular debates. If you're interested, you can watch the first debate between Dinesh D'Souza and the late Christopher Hitchens at King's College. And I, the whole time I'm listening, I'm thinking, get him, Chris. Go get him. And this is a guy who wrote a New York Times bestselling book called God is Not Great, How Religion Spoils Everything. Well, what am I doing pulling for Christopher Hitchens over and against my guy, in quotations, Dinesh D'Souza? And the answer is this. The God that Dinesh D'Souza is defending, and not in all cases, but in that particular debate, or others, the God that many people are defending is not my God. Now, I don't mean to completely disassociate myself here from every... No, 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 I'm not doing that. But what I'm saying is simply this. In many cases, when I hear the atheistic objections to God, I think, that's a good question, that's a good question, that's a good question, that's a good question. And many of the answers that are offered to these questions do not in any way reflect the kind of answers I would give. Are you with me? In fact, if you lined up a thousand available gods, and you said, David Ashrick, you can choose between these thousand available gods, any one of them, or atheism. In all cases but one, I would choose atheism. Did you hear that? I mean, what, what, what God are we talking about? Are we talking about the God that we have to throw a virgin into a volcano to appease his wrath? Is that the God? Okay, so you say, David, you can have the virgin volcano God or you can have no God. I'm taking no God. Are, are you with me? And all the virgins are definitely taking no God, right? <laughs> and keep me out of that volcano, Right? The point is this, when we start talking about a God, we're not just talking about some amorphous thing, we're talking about what scripture reveals is as a person who has, who has very specific characteristics and the question that we're transitioning to now that we've at least initially addressed some of the sort of thorny questions, we've given ourselves intellectual permission to move forward, who is this guy? And tonight we're not going to ask the question, who is he? But we're going to ask a really crazy question. It might seem super simple and, and super Sabbath school. Like we're going back, you know, way, way, way back to sort of 6th, 7th 
uh, you know, six or seven years old, eight years old, nine years old, ten years old. We're going to ask the question tonight, among others, we'll see how far we can get. What is a God? That's what we're going to ask. What is a God? Now, to launch this conversation, we've already asked the question, is it good news that there's a God? And I hope I've given you a, a, enough reason to pause in the future and not just run along with anything that's purportedly religious or Christian, but to ask yourself the question, who is this? Which God is this? Is this the God of Scripture? Is this the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is this the God that, that Jesus came to represent? Or is this some other permutation or iteration of God? Does this make sense? Now, with this in mind, let's go to the screen here, and I want to bring a, a statement here from a late philosopher. He died at the ripe old age of 98, Mortimer Adler. And I came across this particular essay that Dr. Adler wrote in a book called Philosophers Who Believe. And uh, Adler, is, he was an Aristotelian uh, philosopher, and he was an academic philosopher, and he's here, uh, uh, we'll go to the quote in just a second, let me sort of set this up. He's, he's here describing his own conversion, okay? And he's talking about how he went from being a, a philosopher of you know, of thinking about God and free will and all of the things that philosophers spend time thinking about. And he says there came a moment in his life where he transitioned away from merely believing in the philosophical God of the philosophers to a totally different experience. And the essay tells that story. And here, this paragraph I want to read you encapsulates part of that, okay? And then I want to compare it, fascinatingly, to a statement that was written more than 120 years before from one Ellen White. And I want you to see this modern, cutting-edge, academic philosopher, and then we're going to compare that to a very simple statement from Ellen White. We're going to see some remarkable things here, remarkable similarities. Here it is. Dr. Adler wrote, I therefore concluded, he's talking about in his own conversion, I therefore concluded by saying that the soundest, what? Rational argument for God's existence could carry us only to the edge of the chasm that separated the philosophical affirmation of God's existence from the religious belief in God. What is usually called a leap of faith is needed to carry one across the chasm. Okay, let's just, before we go to the next, uh, the rest of the quotation here, let's just do this. Here's what he's saying. He says, in his intellectual academic journey, he came to a realization that, that belief and affirmation of the God of the philosophers could only get us right up to the edge of the, what did he call it? The edge of the chasm or the edge of the abyss. And, you know, like a, like a tiger prowling its cage, you know, look, he, you can go up and down on that abyss as long as you want, but, but what's over there? Now, let's continue the quotation. Notice what he says. But the leap of faith, that is, okay, you got a leap of faith. He says, ah, true, but this is usually misunderstood. The leap of faith is usually misunderstood as being a, a progress from having insufficient reasons for affirming God's existence to a, great, to a state of greater certitude. I used to be only 95% sure, and now I'm 97. Now I'm 97, based on evidence. We've already dealt with that. Now watch this. That is not the case. The leap of faith consists in going from the conclusion of a merely philosophical theology to a religious belief in a God. Now watch this. In a, to a belief in a God that has revealed himself as a, what's the first word? As, so let's say it together. As a loving, just, and merciful creator of the cosmos. Now, now, let's say this together. A God to be loved. A God to be, and a God to be. And then he says, he concludes by saying, the God of the philosophers is not a God to be loved, worshipped, or prayed to. Oh, this is a great point. Let's follow it. 
He basically says, in all of my academic and intellectual studies as I was preparing for, for, for my, my career in philosophy, he says, all that reading the great philosophers, uh, the theistic philosophers and others could do was to get me to the edge of the chasm. Right? To the edge of the chasm. But, but from the edge of the chasm to, to belief in a loving, merciful, compassionate God, he said, that takes a leap of faith. But it's not a leap of faith that says, now I have more evidence, now I have more reasons, now I have more data. It's a leap of faith that says, I'm going to choose to love you because I believe you're there. And in that moment, as we've already described, God gives his spirit as, a, as an affirmation, a self-revelation, a self-disclosure of who he is. And he says, I am your father. Beautiful. We have now, I think, given ourselves intellectual permission to begin to explore who might this be, right? We can have all of the philosophical and, and theological and even logical and, and scientific reasons for where there, why there might be, but that gets us only to the brink of the chasm. Many of you might recall that the, the word skeptic comes from the word skeptine, to, to view at a distance, but the only way to get to know a person is to experimentally, provisionally surrender that skepticism and be vulnerable and draw close because a person can only be known by proximity, by time, by trust. Now here's the statement, very interesting, from Ellen White. Then we'll break away and come back to the table of truth. Notice the similarities between what she says and what Mortimer Adler said. She wrote this more than 120 years before. The only way in which we can gain a more perfect apprehension of truth is by keeping the heart tender and subdued to the spirit. Very interesting. We come to know truth by surrendering the heart. Human science is too limited to comprehend the atonement. That's exactly what Adler was saying. The plan of redemption is so far-reaching that philosophy cannot explain it. Hey, that's what Adler was saying. Continuing. It will ever remain a mystery that the most profound reasoning cannot fathom. The science of salvation cannot be explained, but it can be known by, what's the word? Experience. Only he who sees, the, who sees his own sinfulness can discern the preciousness of the Savior. Here, both Adler and White are saying the same basic thing. If you think you are going to, by the reasoning powers, by the intellect, by, by the voluminous you know, study of books and academics and pour yourself into it, at very best, you will get yourself to the edge of a chasm. A chasm on the other side of which just might be a God of love, but in that moment of surrender, in that moment of experimental, provisional surrender, you say, God, if you're there, reveal your spirit to me. God now comes not as an idea, not as a concept, not as a construct, but God himself by his spirit comes and says, I'm your dad. We together? Now let's transition back to the question that we asked. Is it good news that there is a God? Thank you. It depends. What does it depend on? What kind of a God are we talking about? Now let's ask the question, what is a God? If I say the word hippopotamus, do you get a mental picture? Okay. If I say the word giraffe, do you get a mental picture? Okay. So which is the one that is kind of roundish, gray, lives in the water, and opens its mouth really big and has the long teeth. That's a giraffe, exactly. <laughs> and which is the one that has, has a long neck and cheetah-like stripes and is very graceful? Hippopotamus, very good. 
So if I say, if I say tiger, you get a picture. If I say chihuahua, did I just say that? I just have to quickly clarify something. If you can flush it down the toilet, <laughs> it's not a dog. <laughs> just saying. That's the standard. Below that, it's a rodent. No, I'm telling you, I studied zoology. That's the test. That's, that's the taxonomic test. Okay, back to the question. <laughs> I just offended so many people. I, I said that one time about chihuahuas, and I had this lady, man, she was mad as a hornet. She was standing at the door at Central California Camp Meeting holding this dog, and I kid you not, the dog was like, arr, arr, arr. <laughs> I, I, say, I say, the dog, like, arr, arr. and she's like, you upset Minnie. And, and I was like, I, I can't believe I said it, but I was like, oh, what's she doing out of her cage? She's, put her, get her with her newspaper and her little wheel. Put her in the cage. <laughs> She's like. <laughs> All right. I can only hope that those of you that love chihuahuas will please come to the rest of the meetings. The spirit. <laughs> okay, now, anyway, back to the point, back to the point. The point is this, if I say hippopotamus, you get a picture. If I say giraffe, you get a picture. If I say chihuahua, you get a picture. If I say tiger, you get a picture. If, if I say, okay, so now let's try this. If I say God, is that tougher? Yeah, it's, it is tougher, isn't it? It is tougher, and it's tougher for a, a variety of reasons, not all of which we can go into right now. We have a sort of a visual and tactile understanding of what a camel is or what a hippo is or what a giraffe is. But, but, but what, what is a God? Notice this is a different question. We're not asking who is God or what is he like, but, but what is a God? And here's the answer. We have no idea. No, I'm telling you, we don't know. In terms of God's essential nature, the kind of thing that makes a hippo a hippo, the kind of thing that makes a giraffe a giraffe or a human a human, the kind of thing that makes a God a God, we don't know what we're talking about, right? Now, now don't get me wrong. We have some kind of idea and we have, we have language and construct that we can sort of begin to throw at it, but, but the words that we use to describe God's nature are words that mask our basic ignorance about the thing that we're speaking of. Let me give you some examples. Theologians and philosophers will speak of God uh, as possessing or, or being omnipotent, which of course is just all-powerful. And uh, that is helpful, but what it really just means is that, you know, here I am, five foot eight, 150 pounds, and, you know, I can lift a table, but I can't manage a universe. So if there is a being that manages a universe, he must be more powerful than me and more powerful than I can imagine so he's all-powerful. I don't know what that means. I have no way to measure that or to, to access that, but he's all-powerful. So too with omniscience. He's all-knowing, by, 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 by which we mean he's smarter than me. He could pass the tests that I fail, right? 
he could, he could get through his you know, physical therapy boards or he could pass the, the bar in the law exams. He's smarter than me. In fact, he must be super duper duper smart because when we look at the macro world and the cosmic scale, and even when we look down at the micro world in the very small, whether biological or physical scale, I mean, there's just symmetry, there's beauty. There's, there, I mean, he must be, if he's there, he must be really, 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 really smart. And so we say he's omniscient. Again, we don't really know what we're talking about. These words mask our, our, our actual knowledge of a thing that is incomprehensible to us. So too with omnipresence. And here's a really tricky one. You can't understand. I don't know what that means. I've always been here my whole life. Have you had that? Right? Like you go to the airport or to the mall and there's the little, you know, schematic there, the architectural simplified schematic of the building and there's a little red circle with the arrow that says, you are here. <laughs> well, if you're spatially challenged like I am, this is decidedly unhelpful because I've been here my whole life. <laughs> right? And while I'm here, I'm not there. And I can't even imagine what that would be like. Can you? And imagine being here and there and there. I mean, you and you can't. And at this point, our mind is losing. It's because our reality is not God's reality. God is a mystery to us. In terms of his essential nature and how God experiences reality, it's, I mean, we don't even know how animals experience reality. You know, we sort of anthropomorphize. We say, oh, look, he's so sad. <laughs> yeah, he's not sad, probably. Uh, in fact, somebody just showed me a hilarious YouTube clip. Have you seen this YouTube clip, Sad Cat Diary? Oh, you need to watch that. That's worth its weight in gold. The Sad Cat Diary. And, and it's really funny because they're reading all of these, you know, like sad poems and they're playing this sad music in the background and they're showing all these pictures of cats and they do look really sad. But for all, we, I mean, no one's ever, none of us have ever experienced reality as a cat. So for all we know, they're overjoyed. And they're overjoyed, looks like our sad, and vice versa. So we don't even know how a cat experiences reality. In fact, if you want to get really technical, I don't even know how you experience reality. I don't know what a massage feels like to you. I don't know what a mango tastes like to you. I don't know what a kiss feels like to you. I don't know, I know what it feels like to me. And I make an assumption, I think it's a safe one, but it is an assumption that it's similar to my reality, but it's just a guess. So how God experiences reality, we are way out of our depth now. We are punching well above our weight. Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and how about this one? We'll give two more. There could be a lot more. How about eternal? I just had breakfast this morning, lovely uh, sort of breakfast, lunch, brunch thing with Ivan and Livy, and Livy told me that when she was young, she said she used to think about eternity, and as a little girl, she would cry. Because it was just too big. Like, what does that mean? I don't understand. You know, like, what? What? It's just too, it's too big. And even now, I mean, try imagine a stick with no ends. I mean, what is that? We don't understand it. What are we talking about? We don't know what we're talking about. A being that never had a beginning and never had an end and, and never will have an end and always is. We don't know what we're talking about because our reality is we have a beginning and we have an end and there are times when we aren't and times, presumably in the future, when we won't be again. And so this idea of God's eternality is a mystery to us. The final one, God is a spirit. Jesus was sitting at the woman at the well, and, and she tried to engage him in a mild, you know, sort of religious controversy. And Jesus 
mildly, politely, pastorally rebuffed her and basically said, look, God is a spirit and he's looking for people to worship him in spirit and truth. But what does that mean? What is a spirit? And the answer is we don't know. Now, I know the Bible speaks a little bit about spirits, but the things that we know about spirits, and this is very interesting, is not what they are, it's what they're not. We lack the vocabulary to know what a spirit is. And so when we, you can look up the word spirit if you want in your dictionary, and it will say things like immaterial, which means not made of matter, not made of matter. And it will say things like non-corporeal, not possessing a body. Jesus says, touch me and feel me when the disciples thought he was a ghost. Touch me and feel me because a spirit, you know this, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like I have. Now listen to this. A spirit is immaterial and non-corporeal. In other words, this is what it isn't and this is what it isn't, but what is it? We cannot make any positive statements, at least not that I'm aware of, in terms of our experience about what it is because it's almost like there are whole, uh, you can just think of the, the light spectrum. You know, we see a very narrow part of the light spectrum. There are colors that other animals can see that we don't see. And on both ends of the spectrum, so to speak, it's, it's like we just lack the, the, the plumbing to do it. So you go down the list and we say God is omniscient, God is omnipotent, God is omnipresent, God is eternal, and God is a spirit. And at the end of the day, all we can say is that God is something totally different than anything we've ever encountered. Right? Are we together on that? So think of it this way. Imagine that there is a, a wall, but it's not a literal wall. There's a, there's a grand wall here, right? And, and again, I want to emphasize that it's not a literal wall. That wall represents a kind of chasm, an impassibility, an inaccessibility that any creature, any what? Any creature cannot ever fully access because the chasm between the created and the creature is so big, so phenomenal, so vast, so incomprehensible that even in eternity, I mean, I want you to get this, even in eternity, we will not fully grasp what God is because the, the wall between a created thing and an uncreated thing is, is impassable for us. So far, so good? Now, this is where Scripture gets really fascinating. There are very few equivalences in Scripture, very few, about what God is. And I am going to maintain here that the most profound of these equivalences, grammatical theological equivalences that we have, is this idea that God is love. This is a statement not just about God's character. This is a statement about God's essential nature. Now let me try and explain that. I am not aware of any passage in the Bible that says, for example, God is mercy, or God is strength, or God is power, or God is forgiveness, right? You will find passages that say God is strong, God is mighty, God is powerful, God is merciful, God is forgiving, right? But John did not say merely God is loving, which would be a very modest claim. I mean, you could say that about you, Michael. You could say that about me. Right? You're a loving person and I'm a loving person. Not all the times under all circumstances, but, but it would be true at times to say, Michael is loving and I am loving. Right? So if John had merely said, 
God is loving, this would not be particularly revelatory because you are and so am I. But, but John goes a step further. He gives us an equivalence here. He says that the kind of nature and essence of what a God is, is, is very similar. It is this thing that love is. God is love. And this is our first non-negotiable normative building block for the Christian faith. This is where we start. And all other truths that will make their way onto the table of truth will not merely be compatible with this glorious and grand truth, it will be complementary. Now let me say this again. Is it good news that there is a God? What's the answer to that question? Is it good news that there's a God, Jose? It depends. Okay, but now what? If there is a God like that, a God who in his very nature and in his very essence is love, is that good news? Woo! Now let me tell you this. Not only is it good news, but you can't even think of better news. I, I challenge you to try it. Try it. Try to think of anything that could possibly be better news than this. That you are the special and intentional and purposeful creation of a being who loves you with every ounce of his being, who is so powerful that he could blink and destroy you, but is who, who is so humble that he himself would be destroyed to save you. If that's true, woo, we have something to say. Yes? And this sort of, this sort of mild and modest uh, you know, uh, thing that, that we so often have in our religious services that's, you know, just culture masquerading as modesty or, or, or concern, that we need to, it's okay to get a little excited about this. Right? We, we need to disabuse ourselves sometimes of, of, our, of our timidity. I mean, come on. This is something to glory in. This is something to shout from the rooftops. This is something to celebrate. One of my very, very, very favorite statements from the pen of Ellen White is this great line where she says, when you're preaching on the cross, she's writing to the preachers and she says, when you're preaching on the cross, she says, if you get a little excited and you manifest enthusiasm, she says, you will be forgiven. <laughs> right? Because ha, 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 how can we, we're not standing up and giving an insurance seminar, turn to uh, page 129, subtitle 3, paragraph 1, section A. If the leasee had... Now, hey, no offense, no offense, if you're into that stuff. What, 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 the thing that we're advocating, the thing that we're saying is that the universe is friendly. There is meaning, there is purpose, there will be recompense for suffering and oppression and injustice. God is on the throne. And if that's true, beloved, and I think it is, what are we doing? Away with our pettiness and our false modesty. If this is true, wow, people need to know this. You know what? You need to know it. Yeah? Because no religion can take the place of that. Good religion will, will augment this and will beautify this and will illumine this and bad religion will get in the way of this. We together? So what does this mean, this God is love thing? Well, let's just, let's just put, a little, let's, let's put a little flesh on those bones. If you have your Bibles, not, not that you could see them. Um, 
By the way, I love the lighting. I just want to go on record as saying that. We have this little passage here, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the love chapter. We know this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And very interestingly, in, in the context of, but the sweater was a really bad idea. Man, I'm just dying. It was a really good idea out there and a really bad idea in here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the context is actually a fascinating one because it's, it's not this nice little quaint and cute and happy you know, little poem. We, we've turned it into that. And, and the, the illustration that I sometimes use is, you know, we like, we make a little cross stitch of it. You know, like, oh, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. We put a little, we put a little bluebird in the corner, a sun with a cloud, and down here is grass. And then we put, and we frame it, and we stick it over the toilet in the guest bathroom. <laughs> So people come into our fragrant, potpourri-smelling bathroom, and they're like, oh, look, God, you know, or the, you know, love does not, you know, no, love is not rude, it does not, okay, fine, that's nice, and it's cute, or whatever, but, but that's not what's going on in 1 Corinthians. Okay, what's going on in 1 Corinthians is you have a church that has actually uh, brought the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit, which is primarily love, underneath the gifts of the Spirit. They're all about the bells and whistles of religion, the giftedness of, the gifts of religion, but they've, they have uh, caused the, the, the great truth of Scripture, the great truth of, of God, love, to be subsumed, to come underneath that. And so when you read 1 Corinthians, it's actually a scathing rebuke. It's not a cute little cross-stitchy poem. Paul is not here waxing eloquent for the purposes of making people feel good as they sit in the bathtub. No, what he's saying is, Love is something more than mere religiosity. In fact, we're going to read this here in just a second. It's a rebuke. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, Corinthians, though I can give, I can stand up and preach so my guts are out and people think, oh, listen to that. There's great charisma there. There's great content there. He says, if I don't love people, I'm like a noisemaker. It's not good news. And then he gets actually into the guts of what love is. And it's very interesting he doesn't spend a lot of time telling us what love is, but he does, spend us a lot, he does spend a lot of time telling us what it isn't. Right? Most of the things he says is love is not, and love does not, and love won't. Most of the things he says are framed in the negative. Let's look at this. Verse 4, love suffers long. And let me just pause right there and say that was the presentation last night. God suffers with us and as us in Christ. First thing he says. The first thing you need to know about love is that love is vulnerable. Love is prone to suffering. There's a vulnerability that is inherent in love because love extends. And whenever you extend, you can be rejected. You can be cut off. That's the first thing he wants you to know. Love is vulnerable. Love is transparent. Love suffers long and is kind. Those are positive. Now watch this. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. Now, because God is love... If this is a description of love, an accurate one, and under the inspiration of, of the Spirit, of course it is, then that tells us that, that this is what God is like. God is like that. 
God is like that. Now we're starting to put some flesh and bones on this idea. And there, right in verse 5, right in verse 5, take a look at verse 5 if you have it there. In verse 5 is this simple little nucleic phrase, this little embryonic phrase that wraps the whole thing up in an amazing package. He says, love does not seek its own. Love does not what? Let me translate that for you. Love is not looking out for itself. Love is not self-preservation. Love is not self-aggrandizement. Love is not, is not self-interest. If love is not looking out for its own hopes and its own dreams and its own wants and its own desires, then what, by, by implication, is it looking out for? Yeah, it's looking out for the hopes and the dreams and the desires of others. Love is other-centered. It goes out. It extends And that extension, as we've already discussed here, is vulnerable. It has to be. It's necessarily vulnerable. Love goes out. It does not go in. I'll tell you, this very interesting. This this statement from Ellen White that I've just come across in the last year that that is just a single sentence that has really helped me to grasp the idea of love and the idea of worldliness. And it's a single sentence. And she says this. She says, the essence of worldliness, the substance of worldliness, she says, is to get, get. That's it. Period. End of sentence. So the essence, what the world is all about, we're going to talk about this tomorrow. We mentioned that the Bible can be summarized in three words, creation, conflict, and covenant. Tomorrow we're going to talk about that conflict, that get, get. But the essence of worldliness is it's me, and it's more, and it's mine. And even many of our relationships, let's be honest, turn into economics, I stay with you as long as you bring enough to the table to keep me interested. And if you betray me, if you hurt me, if you gossip about me, if you upset me, then economically I'm out of here. Right? But, but this idea of love is that it's, it's so vulnerable and it's so diffusive and it's so lavishes that it just keeps giving and giving and giving. It just, it extends. Whereas worldliness, keeping and more and me and mine. And what Paul says here is that love is not looking out for itself. Love is giving. And Jesus gives us this axiomatic statement. You would have have heard this before at some time in your life. Jesus says, greater love has no man than this. Here it is. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends, that he would so extend himself that he would lay down his life for others. John 3.16, inarguably the, most, the best known verse in all of the Bible, for God so loved that he what? What does he do? He gave, because that's what love does. That's what love does. Now see if you can get this. If the essence of worldliness is to give, get, get, to keep me, more, mine, based on what we're learning here about God and about love, if the essence of worldliness is to get, get, what would the essence of godliness be? To give, give, give. Together? In fact, for Paul, there is a phrase that he uses over and over again in the New Testament. He just can't get away from this phrase. And that phrase is, gave himself. What's the phrase? Gave himself. Let me give you a few quotations here. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God like dear children 
and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. See, for Paul, these were equivalences. He loved and he gave himself. Just a few verses later in that same chapter, Ephesians 5.25, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. See, for Paul, these are equivalences. To love means to give yourself. That's what it means. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, a well-known passage. I am crucified with Christ, and we'll spend time on this on Friday. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself. Paul can't get away from this phrase. He uses it over and over again in various contexts. He gave himself. He gave himself. He gave himself. He gave himself. He just gave, and he gave, and he gave of himself. That's Scripture's way of saying he loves. Now, what's easier to say to somebody? I love you, or I give myself for you? I'm, I'm asking an actual question. Like, like, what's easier, like day in and day out? I love you. And the reason is because it, there's an elasticity there. We, it can mean whatever I want it to mean right now in this circumstance. Right? I love you means I love hanging out with you. I like the fact that you just paid for the pizza. You know? Man, I love that. And, and, and uh, th this sort of economic element of the love thing here is sort of like, I'm going to continue to love you as long as it's convenient, but that's a different animal. You stand at the altar and you say to another human being, the most difficult, challenging, and yet profoundly beautiful thing you will ever say, I give myself for you. And when that is then, it's really appropriate that this is here. And... When that is then reciprocated and I give myself for you, you now have a beautiful thing. Right? Marriage is a beautiful, awesome thing. I've been in this now for 14 years. And I can tell you, and I'm in to perfect transparency, and my wife could be here, I could bring her up and have her tell you, but she is in heaven right now. My son's heaven. Legoland. Oh, wait, is she here? Hey, come here, come here. Can I borrow you real quick? Just, just really quick. People want to see how pretty you are. <laughs> just so, baby, I only have like 15 seconds. Come on. <laughs> Look at this. Look at this. Ta-da. Now I'm going to saw her in two. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Thank you. <laughs> um, so this is Violetta. Everybody say, hi, Violetta. Hi, Violetta. Um, how was Legoland? Great. What, did Jabel enjoy it? Oh, yeah. Good. Did you buy anything? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> how much did you spend? That's for later. <laughs> later. Okay, so now, babe, I'm going to say something here, and, and you have full permission to, to call me out. Okay. okay. We've, been in, we've been married now for 14 years, and I'm going to say that I am more in love with you and more attracted to you and that our marriage is better now than it has ever been, and I'm telling you the truth, do you believe me? Yes. Okay, now, do you have anything you want to say? <laughs> Speak into the microphone. <laughs> Maybe like something like, I do? <laughs> okay, you're off the hook, you're off the hook. 
Okay. Now here's the point. You just saw a really profound illustration, and that is that love, in order to be love, needs an object. It needs an object. Now we've just got a few minutes here. We're landing this plane. If love is the principle of putting others first, then by definition, there must be an object upon which to bestow that selflessness. Love cannot exist in a vacuum. There must be something upon which to bestow this attitude of selflessness. Does that make sense? Right? There has to be an object. But John did not merely say God is loving, which is something he could have been if he created an object and then chose to love it. But John says that God is what? Love. And I want to ask you a question, and I think you get the answer. Long before there was a created being, before there was a you or a me or a hippo or a giraffe or a chihuahua, before there was any created thing, was God love? Yes or no? He was love. Now, what does this tell us about God's essential nature? At some level, it tells us that within the very nature of God, there are others. And so this provocative young rabbi shows up about 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine and starts saying really provocative things like, I and my father are one. And people said, you're blaspheming. What are you saying? What do you mean? No, 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 no. I'm in such a deep relationship with my father that there is a oneness. And Jesus would pray prayers like this, Father, may they be one like we are. Within this beautiful, wonderful being that is God is not a rigid numerical singularity. No, 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 no. Scripture reveals God as this profound uh, mystery and yet, and yet apprehensible truth that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that from eternity past, the heart of the Father beat and went out to the Son and the Spirit. And the heart of the Son beat and went out to the Father and the Spirit. And the heart of the Spirit went out to the Father and the Son. So that you could truly say of this being, this composite, beautiful, mysterious, selfless being, you could say, God is love. And it's right at this point that we encounter the next major theme of Scripture. In fact, I think you can get this. See if you can understand this. Creation did not make God loving. God's love made creation. Do you, do you understand that? And if you understand that point, we understand why the Bible opens with creation. Right? Because love longs to communicate. Love longs to extend. Love longs to share that thing that we have. And we go from creation, I mean just, and the very next thing we just encounter immediately, conflict just creation conflict just happens and that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow night but I need to leave you with this I got to leave you with this final statement I got to leave you with this because I want you thinking about this before we get here tomorrow here it is it is Satan's now there's the enemy there's the conflict right we're gonna we're gonna hit that head on but watch this it is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of God okay so I don't know if Satan sleeps Right? But if he does, when he gets up in the morning, there's one item on his to-do list. And it's, what do I got to do today? <gasps> Misrepresent God's character. Cause people to not see this. 
Now, here's, here's, the, here's the amazing thing. Do you know the primary way that he's done that? Religion. Watch. Don't take my advice. Don't take my word for it. At the same time, he causes them to cherish false conceptions of God so that they regard God with fear and hate rather than with love. That's where we get the virgin's volcano God. Last bit. The cruelty inherent in his own satanic character is attributed to the creator. And here's the, here's the punchline. This is where we're going tomorrow. This is embodied in systems of religion and expressed in modes of worship. What? What we are seeing here is that inarguably the primary modality of satanic conflict against God's government and character is religion itself. And the cruelty inherent in his own character is actually embodied in modes of worship and systems of religion. That's where we're going tomorrow night. I need to close with two questions and I'm inviting you up broadly. Question number one, is it good news that there is a God? It depends. Very, very good. And is it good news that there is a God like this? There we go. There we go. That wasn't as enthusiastic as I was hoping, but Jose at least did well. Come on, Rodley. You're wearing the tie tonight. I am. All right, fine. Thought I'd change it up a little bit. Yeah, I wish I had a short sleeve shirt on. I was dying. Looks a little hot. I almost took it off, but I was like, no, that's too much. No, stay. I mean, I have a t-shirt on, but I'm just like, that would have been, I, I don't think I could have done that. So I have to bring you back to the very beginning. Okay, do it. Right. Go. I used to have a chihuahua. You used to have a what? A chihuahua. Sorry. Hold on. <laughs> it gets oh, better. But you flushed it down the toilet. It gets better. Her name was Candy, and I'm highly offended. Well, here's my question. Did you regard her as a dog? Yes. Ooh, there's the tension. There's the tension. <laughs> All right, first, first question. By the way, I need to apologize to Allison Brooke, wherever you are. She has a chihuahua. So you're talking to an atheist on an airplane. Okay. Do you think it would be appropriate to ask them what God they don't believe exists? Yeah, I do. My friend Ty Gibson made an awesome video based on that. Have you seen that video? Mm -hmm. Yeah, digma.com. You can go there, digma.com, and click on the video Atheist 2. And Ty tells the story of how he encountered an atheist, and he basically said, tell me about the God you don't believe in, and that video will do a much better job uh, than I could do right now in the little bit of time that we have. But yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Most of the gods rejected by atheists, I also reject. Mm -hmm. okay. There's only one god that they reject that I don't reject. So the website again where they could see it? D Digma, D-I-G-M-A, digma.com, click on Atheist 2. Okay. Here's a tweet. Bring it. If God is something that we cannot comprehend, then can we know then can we know about God based on the fact that humans are made in his image? Yes, and that's exactly what we're closing. Great point, good insight. Yeah, it's a little bit like show and tell. Now, we want to be clear what we're saying and what we're not saying here. We're not saying we can't know anything about God. Obviously, we can. 
We can know who God is based on the self-disclosure of God in Christ and by the Spirit, but we don't know what a God is mm -hmm. in the same way that we know what a hippopotamus is or what a giraffe is. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you, you encounter in the Old Testament over and over again, God says, no idolatry, no idolatry. Don't bow down to an idol. Don't bow down to an idol. And why? Why is God so concerned about this? What's the deal? And here's why. Idolatry is an insult both to God and to humanity. Hmm. The reason that God says, don't make anything in my image, is that he has already made something in his image. Mm. Right? Mm. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So That's... idolatry is an insult. Mm -hmm. Not just mm -hmm. to God, it's an insult to you. Mm -hmm. Why are you bowing down to something you made? Mm. Right? Remember that story in the Old Testament where the thing fell down? Mm -hmm. and then they lifted it back up only to worship it. Mm -hmm. Hello? Google Voice question. How is faith not merely pretending we know something we don't? Without evidence, how can we ever rule out the possibility that our experience of God is actually created by our minds, not a divine entity? Okay, there's a lot of good stuff in that question. Can you read it? Because I want to deal with it in two parts. Yeah, well, it's kind of two questions. Yeah, in a sense. okay, start with the first. Okay, how is faith not merely pretending we know something we don't? Well, first of all, a lot of people's faith probably is that. I mean, with all due respect, there are probably a lot of people who have a misconception and a misdefinition of what faith is, and faith is, you know, believing what you know isn't really true. If that's your definition of faith, then you're in trouble, right? Um, uh, that's not the biblical definition of faith, not even close. Um, so that's sort of the first part of the question, mm -hmm. but then the second part of the question goes into... Yeah, it says, without evidence... How can we ever rule out the possibility that our experience of God is actually created by our minds, not a divine entity? Okay, great question. First of all, I don't know, what the, I don't know how the phrase without evidence functions in this question because it, it doesn't make sense to me because there's lots of evidence for a God. In other lots words, and lots and lots. Yeah, you're, bring it. You're, you're talking about experience, right? Gotcha. How our experience... Without external evidence. Correct. Okay, well, the answer is there's bucket loads of external evidence that corroborates our internal experience. Mm. That's the point. Okay. I mean, there are brilliant people, uh, like Rodley, for example, who uh, are persuaded that the evidence says there is a God, mm -hmm. right? Okay, and somebody says, well, do you know? Well, not based on the evidence, but then when my internal experience confirms what the external world is telling me, now I have not just external data and evidence, I have internal evidence as well. And somebody says, well, how do you know it's not just your mind playing a trick on you? Now, that is a very good question. And then you're going to have to get into whether or not a mind actually exists. And I believe in the existence of minds, and probably you do too, but in a strictly Darwinian world, an atheistic world that we talked about the other day, you can get a mind. You can't get a mind, but you can get a brain. And this is kind of simply illustrated by saying, have you ever, how many people here have ever changed their mind? That's all of us. How many of you have changed your brain? right? It's not as though the brain surgeon, you know, the brain surgeon's in there doing surgery on, you know, someone's brain and says, oh, look at that. They really do like chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> no. Right. All, that, all that they have access to is a physical organ, the brain, but, but th that's not the thing that we're most concerned about. Mm -hmm. It's the mind. Now, no one denies that the mind is seated in the brain, but the mind itself, it to me, is the most profound evidence external for the existence of God. I quote Einstein when he says, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is precisely its comprehensibility. The most amazing thing about the universe is that there are people here to appreciate that the world is amazing. Mm, okay. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, surely this ought to raise our suspicions. 
Okay. I love that question, by the way. It's a good question. All right. If I pray a prayer that is God's will, mm-hmm. right, then why won't he answer immediately? For example, if I pray for wisdom to know what to do in a certain situation, or if I pray for God to help me overcome a struggle, why won't he answer me? I think the assumption is that he's not answering you, but he just might not be answering you in the way that you think he should. Hmm. See, that's the great thing about God. He doesn't have to act like humans. He can act like a God. Hmm. It's his prerogative to do so. And so we have often a very simplistic, very perfunctory idea of I ask and I get, I ask and I get. But God might be answering your prayer. He is answering your prayer. By the way, I know he's answering your prayer because if you say I want wisdom, the Bible says he'll give it to you. And if you say I want victory, those are both his will. So he mm-hmm. is answering that prayer, but maybe not in the sort of elementary pedestrian way that you think it should happen. You have to look deeper because he's there. Final question. Final one. Can you touch on how God may perceive time and how that affects how he can be loved? For example, if he knows exactly what is going to happen, mm. how can that be different than predetermining what will happen, which takes away my freedom? Okay. Okay. Do you want the 30-second answer or the 30-year answer? No, I mean, really, I mean, really, there's the short answer and the long answer, and here's the short answer. The short answer is God is a mystery. We good with that? That's what we talked about tonight. So that's, there's a mystery. And then the second one is that time is a mystery, right? Even philosophers of time don't really know what time is. We mentioned that yesterday, that time is that thing that prevents everything from happening at once. We don't know what time is. It's the matrix in which we live. It's the, it's the aquarium that we're swimming in, but we don't know what we're talking about. So now you have two mysteries. You have a mystery wrapped in a mystery. God, who's mysterious by nature, time, which is mysterious by nature. And we're asking the question, how does God relate to time? And the big answer is we don't have a clue. We, we, we're, we, are, we are ants talking about quantum cosmology. We are way out of our depth here, okay? But the second part of the question is a great one, and that is, but wait a minute, if God already knows what I'm going to do, then isn't that somehow predetermining? And this is a question that Christians have wrestled with down through the ages, and my response to that is no, no. And here, let me use an illustration, a sports illustration. Let me first say the thing, and then I'll use the sports illustration. The thing I'll say is that God's foreknowledge is not causal. What God knows is not what he chose, right? Mm-hmm. right? What God uses is not what he chooses, right? There are things that happen to us that he knows will happen, but that doesn't mean he chose it. Mm-hmm. There are things that happen to us that are terrible that he, that he uses, but that doesn't mean he chooses those okay. things. So as long as his foreknowledge is not causal, it, you still have free choice. And you say, well, that's a mystery. Well, I get it's a mystery, but let me try and explain it for you. So a couple of years ago, well, how many of you are sports fans? Yeah? Okay. So, so I don't know how you watch sports, but when I watch basketball, that's probably where I'm at in terms of the sport that I like the most, basketball. Um, I, don't, I hate commercials. It's against my religion to watch commercials. <laughs> so what, what I do, my friends Jeffrey, Emil, and I, when we get together to watch a basketball game, we start at an hour and a half late. So if the game starts at 7, we start watching it at like 8.30 because mm-hmm. we just record it ahead of time so you can fast forward through the commercials, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Many of us do this. And uh, that works out really, really well, but we have a rule in the home, and that is you can't have your phones. Mm-hmm. Like no phones, no external communication. You just can't do it because you could get information that could spoil your mm-hmm. experience. Now, let me ask you, by the way, does anybody else do this? Just say an amen if you do that. You fast forward through the commercials. Okay, now here's the question. For those of us that do that, and even for those of you that can just imagine this, does the fact that what you're watching, the fact that that's already happened, right? 
That happened an hour ago. Does that in any way take away from your experience? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. The fact that the guy across the street has already watched what you're now watching doesn't take away from your experience because you're experiencing it in real time. Mm -hmm. As long as the guy across the street is not making these things happen, mm -hmm. the fact that he merely knows it does not in any way Im impact your experience because it's, it's fresh and new okay. to you. Oh, I can't believe he made that pass. Mm -hmm. Right? It's happening to you, but that pass happened an hour ago. Mm -hmm. And you don't sit there and mope saying, this has all already happened. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right? And so in that sense, the answer to the question, I think, is two parts. Number one, it's a mystery within a mystery, God and time. Mm -hmm. And number two, as long as God's foreknowledge is not causal, as long as it's not causing our choices, then you're still free. You're still free. And uh, the fact that he knows should not in any way detract from the real time of your experience. And it doesn't. It just doesn't. You know, Rodley back there, he couldn't decide if he should have a shirt tucked or untucked. Mm -hmm. And you chose to tuck it in. Mm -hmm. Right? It's not as though God made you to do that. It was a free right. choice that Rodley made, and he looks great. Thank you. <laughs> Pastor Asik, thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you for joining us. I pray you have been blessed. Let's keep in touch, and we can make our time together interactive. Find us at faithchapter.org. You can leave a prayer request or sign up for Bible studies. You can also find out how you can ask a question on the program. Follow us also on Twitter at faithchapter. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep writing your faith chapter.